been one of those mornings where everything technology has not worked immediately, including my iPad. But I think we're ready. The dad, the dad had dreaded this moment. It wasn't going to be comfortable. He knew that he was going to stumble over his words. He feared he might be laughed at or not understood or totally rejected. The dad felt that maybe he had failed his son for waiting so long. Still, deep down, you know, he wished his wife would do this, that she would take care of it, but she said it was a father's responsibility. He hated it when she was right and calling him out for being chicken. It was now or never. This might be his last opportunity. His son was headed to Florida for a spring break. He was 18 years old, most likely too old for this. This talk. The dad wondered what was the best age for the talk. And so he met his son out in the backyard. A, a, a nervous dad mumbled out the words, Son, I think we need to talk about sex. There. He said it. He, he waited for what would come next. He thought he was ready for whatever his son would say. But he wasn't. His son replied, Sure, Dad, what would you like to know about sex? <laughs> what? That was not what the father expected. He was speechless, and in silence he walked away. Now, I've changed a little bit, but I know this story because I was the son. I barely remember it, but my dad loved to share that response that I gave to him for years. And the truth is, like all teenagers, I thought I knew a lot more than I did. And even if I didn't know much, I wasn't about to admit that to my dad. Today, this morning, I'm the one here, up here that's a little nervous, a little trembling, the palms are just a little bit sweaty, kind of feel a little bit of a flush in my face. You know, it's, it's one thing for a pastor to come up in front of you and, and talk about sin. It's another thing to speak about sexual sin. But if you looked on your bulletin, the title of today's message is, Let's Talk About Sex. When I decided several months ago to work through Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth, I knew exactly where it would head. There are some sensitive subjects in this letter, and sexual immorality is one of them. See, there's a reason why in my 17 years of serving here on staff at Bethesda that I have never touched Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And now you know why. The fact is, is we don't like to talk about sex in church. It makes us squirm. We feel uncomfortable. We want to make sure that the children aren't listening. And yet, God invented sex for the enjoyment between a man and a woman in marriage. And the Bible is filled with sex, both moral and a whole lot of immoral sexuality. And God also gave us love. I want to share just a, a few examples of Love and sex in the Bible. You might want to cover your ears. 
Incest. Incest. Lot's daughters got him drunk and then had sex with him. Adultery. We talked about David and Bathsheba on Ash Wednesday, just not too long ago. Rape. In Genesis, there's a section called the defiling of Dinah. Devotion. Jacob worked for years to get Rachel as his wife. The issue of multiple wives. All you got to do is look at King Solomon. The joy of sex in marriage. Solomon wrote a whole book on it. It's hot, it's steamy. And I'm sure the teens are going to go ahead there and read it after church. Weird sex part one. Sarah gave her handmaiden to her husband to father a child for him. Prostitution. The prostitute Rahab helped the Israelite spies and even was mentioned in Jesus' lineage. Weird sex part two. A man in Corinth was sleeping with his stepmom. We just talked about that last week. And then I wanted to end on a positive note, and we've got romance. Boaz wooed Ruth in a totally gentleman's type of way. Now at this point, some of you might be squirming. Others of you might be sitting there and thinking, you know what, I'm, I'm way too old to talk about sex. And maybe you, a few of you are actually wondering where this is all going to head. You're not alone. So am I. Well, one thing I'd like to point out is we're never too old. Sexual sin is with us no matter what our age. Pornography has become so available through the Internet, it's available to all regardless of age. And you might have grandchildren or great-grandchildren. You can help them, but I would advise you not to wait until they're 18 and headed out on spring break. It probably is a little too late. For the younger folks here this morning, this message might be one that you really don't want to hear, but you need to hear it. So listen up. There are three points that that I'm going to try and hit in this message. The first is a statement that also could be handled as a question, and it is, I am free. I am free. The second is, I have value. And then the third is, I belong to someone. Before we get rolling, though, I do want to say a few things about sexual sin. And the first is that sexual sin is sin. But it's not an unforgivable sin. Sexual sin, like other sins, can be forgiven. Number two, in the church, we often hit some sexual sins harder than others. It's as if we accept some sexual sins as okay, and then we rain hellfire down on other sexual sins. And then third, this is... Paul's major challenge in our passage to us is that Paul's basically telling us that sex isn't as as casual as our uh, culture makes it out to be. We have to take very seriously what we do with our bodies. Sex and sexual sin encompass our entire being. Well, nobody's walked out yet, so I guess we're doing okay. In verse 12, Paul wrote this. He said, everything's permissible for me, but not everything's beneficial. Everything's permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. And his point could be summarized as a statement and a question, and it's our first point, is I am free. Am I? In verses 15 and 16, 16, Paul asked and answered that question. He said, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? 
Shall I take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? Now, before we go further, I've got to point out something here, is that prostitution was actually much more acceptable in the ancient world than it actually is today. That might be hard to believe. But it was common for a pagan temple host to head a dinner. And then after dinner, prostitutes would often be offered to the guests for their pleasure. Compared to a dessert. But totally wrong and totally unacceptable. Also in Paul's time and in that culture, it was not uncommon for a man to end a hard day's work by visiting a brothel. See, his wife was meant for bearing him children and helping with perhaps his political or his social status. She wasn't necessarily his source for sexual pleasure. Visiting prostitutes was socially acceptable in Corinth. Sex outside of marriage was normal. And the church at Corinth supported the cultural beliefs. And that's why Paul was coming down on him. And it's pretty much the same in our culture. But Paul wasn't going to buy it. He knew the truth. Paul knew that the truth is what would actually set people free. When he wrote, all things are permissible for me, he was basically saying, I'm free of inhibitions and restraints. Now, you could say that Paul's words could be the mantra for our current permissive culture. You could say that Paul was actually saying, you know, I'm free to do whatever I please. But that's not what he was saying. Because he added, I won't be mastered by anything. Sin can be our master. Sex can be our master. Sex can control us, our thoughts, our time, and our actions. Sexual addiction is real. And when we believe that we can do whatever we want, it's actually evidence of us being trapped. We're a prisoner to our sexual desires and the culture's depiction of sex. It can basically own us. Our freedom is not to do whatever we want in regard to sex or any other sin. Our freedom is actually to live a life that is not a prisoner to sin. It's not a prisoner to our own desires. It's not a prisoner to give in to all the temptations that we face. Here's the deal. We, our our culture, is very interested in the pleasure that sex provides. But some don't want the lasting commitment that's part of that pleasure. If you say that you make love to a person outside of marriage, you're not really loving him or her. If a man really loved a woman really loved her, wouldn't he want to commit to her for a long-term relationship in marriage? Wouldn't he want to make some form of a lasting commitment to her? And so Paul was dead on when he said, everything's permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. If you want to break God's laws on sex or anything else, guess what? You can do it. It's your choice. But it's going to lead you into sin's trap. God wants something better for you. The Bible's teaching on sex is for our own good. We can be free. Freedom is doing the right thing. And that brings us to Paul's second point on sex, is that I have value. You have value. 
Many years ago, there was a, a movie called Saturday Night Fever. It was incredibly popular, and it fueled the 1970s disco music movement. And that in itself was reason to dislike that movie. <laughs> Some of you liked it, and the disco. Some of you might remember the movie, and you might remember the disco craze. If you're too young to have experienced that, be thankful. You didn't miss much. Now, I will tell you, I didn't see Saturday Night Fever when it came out. In fact, I didn't see that movie until about 15 years ago. And what I remember from that movie is so incredibly sad. One of the female characters was a virgin. And somehow she felt less of a woman because of her virginity. She felt less loved. And in one scene, in the back seat of the car, she lost her virginity to not one, but at least a couple guys that were her friends. And as it was happening, she didn't feel free. She didn't feel valued. In fact, she was crying. She realized she had made a mistake. She believed the lie that having sex would somehow make her more popular, more loved, more of a woman. But it didn't. It made her feel dirty. It made her feel used. And I got to tell you, I hate that scene because when I saw it, I, my heart broke for her. It was a tragedy. And the tragedy is that sex is more than a physical act. Paul wrote something a little strange in verse 13. He wrote, food for the stomach and stomach for the food but God will destroy them both. And those words that he spoke echoed the beliefs of Paul's time. You see, the philosopher Plato said that it didn't matter what you did with your body. So your stomach didn't matter, food didn't matter, your body and everything material was going to be destroyed anyway. Plato said all that really mattered was your soul. People today say, sex is just my body. It doesn't have anything to do with my inner being. And that's not true either. At the end of verse 13 and into verse 14, Paul said, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. And what he's saying there is that what we do with our body is very important. Our bodies will be raised when Jesus returns. Our soul and body will reunite. Our body's important. And what we do with it matters. Sex is never casual. Paul said that in sex, the two become one flesh. He was quoting Jesus, who was also quoting Genesis. Something happens in sex. Two people unite in a way that is incredibly intimate, incredibly personal, and you just can't have sex with your body and leave the rest of you out of it. And this is what Paul stated in verses 19 and 20. He said, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. That little section, Paul began by making kind of a startling statement. He said, your body, my body, is a temple of the Holy Spirit. If you've trusted your life to Jesus, if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives inside you. The Holy Spirit was given to us by God. Going back to verses 15 and 16, it says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? 
And that is reinforcing the idea that whatever we do with our body is important. It matters in regard to sex. But it also commit, uh, speaks to other sins we commit against our body. If we abuse our body, if we don't take care of our body, we're not honoring God. And this is the hard part. When we commit a sexual sin or any other kind of sin that we commit, we're taking Jesus along with us. I mean, this can be so convicting. Would Jesus watch that movie? Would he watch that TV show? Or would he watch what's on your computer screen? If you're watching it, Jesus is watching it right there with you. And that's something to think about. A a young man once said to me, I feel like I gave something to my girlfriend that I could never get back. He understood what the young woman in that Saturday Night Fever movie realized. See, this young man didn't just have sex with his girlfriend. He gave something of himself to her. And she did the same. And it couldn't be undone. Paul said in verse 18, Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body. But he who sins sexually sins against his own body. And the point here is that you have value. Your son, your daughter, your granddaughter, your grandson or other young person in your life, or or whoever in your life, has value. And it's so important that they and we understand that value. Christian rock band for King and Country has a song that speaks to the value specifically of a young woman. Part of the lyrics state this, they say, I see you dressed in white, every wrong made right. I see a rose in bloom at the sight of you. Oh, so priceless. Irreplaceable, unmistakable, incomparable. Darling, it's beautiful. I see it all in you. This is a message for us. This is a message for any young women we might know. It's a message for any young men we might know. You're priceless, you're beautiful. You have value. Your entire body has value. But you know what? No matter what we do, forgiveness and restoration are available to us. No matter what anyone has done to us in our life, forgiveness for them and restoration for us is available. See, that's why Jesus came. We're free. We matter to God. And and that brings us to the third statement Paul makes to us in this passage, is that is that we belong to someone. And of course, that someone is Jesus. At the end of verse 19 and in the first words of verse 20, Paul wrote this. He said, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. If you've trusted your life to Jesus, you belong to him. And that's a good thing. In fact, it is the best thing that could ever happen to you or to me. And so in return, what we do, not to earn our place, but in return, our response, is that we honor God. We seek to live a life of obedience. And such a life is actually a life of joy. We're secure. We have hope. Heaven is our home. And we're children of God. 
And see, because God loves us so much, He wants what is best for us. Sin, whether it's sexual or any other kind of sin, may bring some temporary happiness. But it doesn't last. In fact, it damages us. It hurts our relationships with others. It interferes with our relationship with God. It doesn't break it, but it gets in there and it clouds it up. And so we do things God's way. And, and I'll admit, doing things God way, God's way sometimes doesn't feel like fun. But it's the best way to live. And it's actually a life that brings much more joy. Stephen Um is a writer who embellished the Old Testament story from the prophet Hosea. I'm going to share how he said it. He said, God told his prophet to marry a girl who was going to break his heart. He was going to break, she was going to break Hosea's heart. This girl was a prostitute. Her name was Gomer. She had children with Hosea, but her prostitution, her prostitution didn't end once she married. Over and over again, she cheated on Hosea. Her life was headed down the toilet. And then one day she found herself destitute and she was on the bidding block to be bought. She was in big trouble. She stood there naked and ashamed under the gaze of several bidders. She waited to find out her future. But as that auction started, something very strange happened. She heard faintly, yet unmistakably, a voice in her ears. Five shekels. She knew that voice. She remembered that voice. I'll give you ten shekels for her. She wondered to herself, why would he do this? Fifteen shekels. Sold to the bidder for fifteen shekels. She was bought by the man she cheated on over and over again. Her buyer was a man whose heart she undoubtedly broke more times than he could count. And, and she wondered to herself, why, why would he do this? And then it hit her. He was buying her to get revenge. Her life was about to end, or at least it was going to become more miserable than she could ever imagine. And so she braced herself for the worst. But what happened next was even more shocking. The man, her former husband, greeted her with a kind smile and a warm embrace. He said to her, I love you more than you will ever know. Now let's go home. This story was also the story of, nation, of the nation of Israel. They cheated on God, and yet he never gave up on them. And it's our story, too. We have prostituted ourselves so many times. We, too, have cheated on God. We've committed sexual sins. Maybe it was simply lust. We've committed other sins as well, sins of pride, greed, selfishness, drunkenness, anger, laziness, and the list goes on and on and on. And all these sins... Cheat God of the priority that he deserves in our life. We are broken. We have nothing to offer. We stand before God totally naked, stripped of all the things that we've done to try and cover up those sins. 
and we deserve death. And then something amazing happens. Jesus comes to us. He forgives all the times that we have let him down. He doesn't care that in the past we've turned our back on him. Jesus is not going to turn his back on us. Jesus buys us back. He paid for us with his life. Jesus went to the cross to pay the penalty that you and I owe. And then he rose from the dead to promise us eternal life in paradise. And Jesus looks at you, and he looks at me, and he smiles. And he says, I love you more than you will ever know. Now let's go home. In Christ, we're free to live the right way. We have value. We are priceless. We know we were bought with a price. And so we seek to honor God with our thoughts, our actions, and our bodies. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, your love for us is totally amazing. It doesn't make sense. Why would you love people who repeatedly turn their back on you, who cheat on you through the things of this life? Why would you send your son to make the greatest sacrifice ever for us? But you did it. You did it because you love us more than we will ever know, more than we can ever understand in this life. It's a crazy love. It's an incomprehensible love. And it's a love that we receive when we put our trust in your Son. It's a love we can never repay, but God, we want to be the people you want us to be. And so we confess our sins to you this morning, but we also ask you to help us. Guide us. Help us resist temptation, whether it's sexual sin or any one of another million sins. And Father, we thank you for forgiveness. That when we fall short, and we fall short, that your love for us never fails. You give us hope, you give us life, and it came through your Son. We pray in his name. Amen. If you're able, please stand as our worship team comes forward to sing the closing song.